was delaying because I wanted to listen to more of the Dobro for a minute. I was, I was, wor- I was worshiping. <clears throat> Thank you, guys. Um, if you will, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to hit the first 11 verses today. Um, <clears throat> having voice issues, so if I have to drink water in the middle, please forgive me for that. Just part, part and parcel of the day in the allergies. Um, we're continuing our study of 1 Corinthians. We have been obviously out last week for Easter. Um, two weeks ago, uh, Larry preached through 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, we do not have a song this week, unfortunately. Um, however, I have, and my two sons have been walking around the house singing that song for the last couple of weeks. If you were here, you know what I mean. Uh, it's just not right. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about, about that. So I want to get into that really quickly. But I first want us to pray, make sure that our hearts are prepared to hear the word and to sit under the word as the authority of our life. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, um, all of us in this room are desperate for you. The reality is, is that our flesh longs to run from you. But you are the great reward. You are the pearl of great price. You are what we need more than we know, more than air that fills our lungs and the food that we eat. Lord, you are our sustenance. And if we don't realize that, God, we are in desperate strait. So today, Lord, through your power of your, of, of your spirit and through the truth of your word, will you transform us? Will you help us sit back Look into the mirror of your word and reflect upon our own lives and our own hearts. We might love you more. We might see you more clearly and love you more dearly and follow you more nearly day by day. Pray this in Jesus' name. There were two young teenage girls that decided that they wanted to bless their neighborhood. So, instead of doing what the rest of their classmates were doing that night, going to a dance, they decided to bake cookies for their neighbors. And they baked and they baked and they baked and they baked a ton of cookies. And so they went out into the neighborhood in the evening, knocking on doors whose lights were on and dropping these gifts of love to the neighborhood, and it was getting a little bit later, and they finally got to one woman's door at about 10.30 at night, um, knocked on the door of a 49-year-old woman who didn't answer the door, and however, she did experience an anxiety attack because somebody beat on her door at 10.30 at night, which ended her night in an emergency room. And the next day, that woman decided to sue the girls. And not only did she sue them, she won. And the judge awarded the plaintiff $900 to cover the emergency room visit. The woman said that she just wanted the girls to learn a lesson because they shouldn't have been out 
late at night, running around, going door to door. Something bad could have happened to them. We love to sue people. We love it. And then there's this guy named Donald Drusky that just blows me away. He was a one-time employee of U.S. Steel Corporation, and um, he blamed God for getting fired. And after battling the company for 30-some-odd years, he decided to take legal action against God. The suit reads, The defendant, God, is the sovereign ruler of the universe and took no correction, corrective action against the leaders of his church, his nation, or my company. And I experienced extremely serious wrongs which ruined the life of Donald S. Drusky. So for damages, I am asking that I get the return of my youth, the skill of a great guitarist, not sure what that, how that fits into a steel worker. Um, the resurrection of my mother and my pet pigeon. Drusky hoped that God would fail to appear in court, allowing him to win the case by default. We're Americans, and we love to sue people. Even precious little teenage girls delivering cookies to our door or the sovereign God of the universe who didn't do what we thought he should do. Which is, ironically, part of being sovereign. You get to choose. So, anyway, we live in a culture that is saturated by a litigious nature. It's incredible. If you look at the stats, just listen to these. 80 million lawsuits are filed every year in America. That's an average of 152 per minute. An estimated $250 billion a year is spent on fighting litigation. More than half of that is spent on legal fees. In 2004, it was 2% of the gross domestic product of our country. A small business owner, this will just bless you guys who own small businesses and are trying to really work hard and make a living. You have a one in four chance of being sued in the next 12 months. That makes you want to go out tomorrow and do business with people, doesn't it? An estimated 60% of American companies are sued by their employers every year. Employees, I'm sorry. Although Americans only make up 4.6% of the world's population, we have more than 70% of the world's lawyers. Unbelievable. Which left a writer of the Washington Legal Foundation to say, it's just further evidence that Americans love to sue someone and it has become the preferred means of solving their disputes. And the church of America doesn't look much different, nor did the church at Corinth. You see, they lived in the same type of culture. It's a very, very same passion for suing people in their culture. And it made its way into the church, and it was the preferred means of solving disputes 
and protecting financial gain or even maybe promoting financial gain. So as we start our study in chapter 6, there's a couple things I want to, us to think about since we've had a week in between. You know, if you, on, on just face value, when you start to read chapter 6, it seems that Paul jumps from uh, the evils of sexual immorality to the problems of lawsuits among Christians, which is true, but there's a connection that is flowing through these chapters. You see, there's a connection of thought He is not leaving the idea of immorality. He is just shifting to another appalling example. So we leave the sexual immorality and we go to the litigious one. But it's all immorality. And it was expression of a deeper problem. And this is what I want you to hold on to for the rest of our time. It was an expression of the problem of their weak understanding of the church and who they were as the church. You see, if the Corinthians, I think Paul's convinced here, if the Corinthians could just understand the implications of their identity in Christ, they would see all the improprieties in their church with clear eyes. And if they appreciated the qualities, these qualities that they would allow them to characterize who they were as believers. They would much sooner bear injustice than bring disgrace to the gospel and to the community of faith by exposing all of their sins in a court of law. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. The first verse says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The Corinthian believers are suing one another and bringing their cases before what Paul calls the unrighteous. He is shocked. He cannot believe that they would dare go to the law. Paul's concern was not that the believers would get an unfair hearing in the public courts. It was the fact that they had such little understanding and respect for the church's authority and ability to settle disputes that they would just quickly go there. And that was their preferred way of dealing with conflict. You see... Paul can't imagine that. Because as believers in Christ, we are members of his very own body, one with Christ and one with another. We're dwelt, we're indwelt with the Spirit of God. We are his temple. All true Christians are saints. Listen. You don't have to do a bunch of good things and die to become a saint. Good works and death don't bring that. A saint in the Bible is one who has been changed by Christ, indwelt with the Spirit, and lives by the Spirit. One who walks with Christ. 
one who the Spirit moves in and moves through to others. The church is the assembly of the holy ones, the saints. That's what we are. And Paul is flabbergasted. He can't imagine. Do you remember in first, the first chapter, verses 2 through 7, he said, We, the church, are enriched in him in every way, not lacking in any gift. Paul's dumbfounded. If you and someone else in the congregation have a dispute, how can you take it outside the church where there are no resources of truth and wisdom and justice and love and mercy and generosity and forgiveness? How can you? Where is the gospel in that? Where is it? It's not in civil court. That's the law. Now, before I get too far down the road, you have to take this verse, and I don't have time to do this, but you need to take these verses and you need to balance them with Romans 13. There is a place for court. There is a place for law. There is a place for the government. They are appointed by God. They are appointed to exercise justice against Criminal evil acts. And that's not what Paul's talking about today. You need to know that. If you, if you committed a murder and you came into my office and you said, Hey, Jeff, let's just keep this in the church. Let's just keep it on the down low. I killed somebody last night. I, you know, was so, No. No. You, you, I'm calling 911 quick. Okay? Not because you can't come to your pastor with some issues. You committed a crime. Therefore, there are legal ramifications that need to take place. If you beat your wife, I'm calling the police first. I will walk you through it, but you are going to jail. There are appropriate places for those types of things. But the Corinthians were suing one another for gain, to get a judgment in a dispute, in a relational hurt, a sin. And that is baffling to Paul. Verses 2 through 3, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know what we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Paul takes their identity as the church and their destiny as a people of God and he holds it up and he says, do you not know who you are? Please look in the mirror. Do you not know? You are a co-heir with Christ. You will reign with him for eternity. You will judge the world. You will even judge angels. 
What are you doing? Revelation 2, 26 through 27 says that the one who overcomes or conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots and broken pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, you will reign with Jesus. That is your destiny as the church. And if the church was to rule the earth one day, how could they not rule themselves within the church now? That is incomprehensible to Paul. How could they call themselves followers of Christ? And allow their pride and their carnality and their greed and their bitterness to rule them and be aired before the world. Paul goes on. And he says, so if you have such cases, which he knows they do. Remember when your dad used to do that to you? So if you have, he already knows. So if you have cases like this. Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. It is shameful. It is shameful for whatever the reason. Whether greed, pride, whether they're... Is shame, he's shaming the church that no one is mature enough to make these decisions. It is shameful that this is going on. It defames the gospel. It defames the name of Christ. It defames the name of the church for the whole world to see. We're just going to air it out there. You see, Paul would further his comments in verses 7 and 8, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? The lawsuits among the Corinthians were their defeat. You see, even before their case was heard in court, they lost. They lost spiritually. Their selfishness discredited the power of the gospel. In, in an effort to get what they wanted, they sought out judgments from unbelievers. Now, whether inside or outside the church, an attitude demanding one's rights remains in direct conflict with Jesus' teaching and his example. Matthew 5, 39 through 42, Jesus said, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And then 1 Peter 2, we see Jesus' example of walking that obedience out. 
See, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, if two people in this church or in the church at Corinth cannot resolve their disagreements humbly by confessing their own sin and seeking reconciliation short of going to court, then something has gone gravely wrong. Something shameful is happening. Isn't it far better? Isn't it far better for you to be wronged than to go after a brother? Isn't it not far better to lose financially rather than to lose spiritually? Is it not far better to value your relationship with God and with one another more than your rights? Jesus What are the two great commandments? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Leonard Sweet recounts a story when he was going to a conference to uh, teach on leadership. And he flew into Phoenix Airport. One of his friends picked him up in a brand new Ford pickup. Whisked him away to the conference. And he reflects on on this and he says since I was still mourning the trade-in of my own truck uh, we immediately bonded sharing truck stories and laughing at a bumper sticker truism nothing is more beautiful than a man in his truck (laughs) as I climbed into his ranger for the ride back to the airport a day or so later I noticed two huge scratches and dents on the passenger door what happened here I said My neighbor's basketball post fell and left those dents and white scratches, Tom replied in a downcast voice. You're kidding. How awful. I commiserated with him. This truck is so new, I can still smell the new. And then my friend told me what's even worse is my neighbor doesn't feel responsible for the damage. Rising to my friend's defense, I said, did you contact your insurance company? How are you going to get him to pay for it? And this is what his friend said. This has been my real spiritual journey. After a lot of soul searching, prayer, and discussion with my wife about hiring an attorney, it came down to this. I can either be in the right or I can be in relationship with my neighbor. And since my neighbor will probably be with me longer than this truck, I decided that I'd rather be in relationship than be right. Besides, trucks are meant to be banged up, so I got mine initiated into the real world a bit earlier. At what cost? At what cost would you betray the gospel and go after one of your family? When would you be willing to sacrifice your relationship with God and one another in order that you might be deemed right.
You've heard the horror stories. You probably have some in your family. Of when people's parents die and the siblings fight, take each other to court for measly dollars. They destroy all of the family relationship just to get their hands on a little bit of money. Pride. Carnality. Greed. Or what about you? What about when you get in an argument with your wife or husband and you know you're right? You know it. In the deepest part of you, you are right and you have been wronged. And so you go out to the couch. Now, this is total hypothetical. This doesn't happen in my... You go out to the couch and you sit down on the couch and you wait for her to figure it out that she was wrong. And to come out to you and bow humbly before you and admit her sinfulness and look for your forgiveness. Like I said, total hypothetical. That is pride. That is pride and it destroys a relationship on the point of being right. Instead of me sitting on that couch, just blew it, didn't I? Just gave myself away. Just me sitting on that couch and thinking about the ways that I had wronged my wife and what I needed to confess and to be a quick repenter and to walk into the room where she is, go to her and say, I have sinned against you, dear. This is how. Please forgive me. Let's be reconciled. You are members of God's family. You are the church. Is there a dollar amount? Is there a level at which you're going to court? If you do business with somebody in this church and they don't do what they agreed to do, is your first inclination... To sue them? What about the conflicts you have in this church? Have you sat down and thought about what part of that conflict you own? That is your sin? That is breaking your relationship with God and your relationship with one of his own. How far would you push it? How far would you push your claim to be right for your justice? Because it is the American way. Does your relationship with God and your relationship with the church outweigh your desire to be right? Or do you entrust yourself to the one who will judge justly? Next time you have a conflict with someone in your family or in this church, 
What if you went through this progression? What if you thought first about, what are the real motivations in my heart behind this grievance? What sins have I committed in this conflict? What will it, if I take this next step I'm thinking about, what will this action do for my relationship with this person? What will this do for the reputation of the gospel in this community? How will this affect the church as a whole? You've seen it. You've seen the church divided. You've seen the people that sit on this side of the congregation that will never talk to these people over here because their families have been squabbling for three generations. That is not the church. Do you love money or being right over how much you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you handling conflict right now? There are over 700 people, sinners, you have in this church. You, you probably have conflict with somebody. Isn't it better to be wronged and defrauded than to wrong and defraud? Let me say this. I love this church because I have seen people fight for this over the last more than a decade here more than I've seen it anywhere. Now there have been people who have left our congregation because they did not want to tow this road. They did not want to be reconciled. They were unwilling to sit and do the hard work of confessing their own sin, forgiving other people, being forgiven by others, and building those relationships back. But I have seen it here Time and time again, as people get sideways with one another in small groups, as you have come to me with issues maybe that I have hurt you some way, and we've worked through those things over the years. It's amazing. And that's what breeds health into this church, that you are more, you're more worried about your relationship to God and your relationship to one another and what the gospel calls you to, then you are walking away, taking someone to court, being right. And I thank you for that. Because that long, persistent walking out in obedience produces health in your life. It produces a sanctification in your life but it also produces a sanctification in the body of Christ so thank you thank you for that and do it all the more Paul turns from that to a pretty harsh declaration He writes in verse 9 through 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you are getting ready to get mad at me. Because I'm going to step on your toes or the toes of someone you really love, please bear with me. I'm trying to get to Paul's point. You cannot be a Christian and live an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle. You cannot. You cannot. This list is full of nouns, labels, of people's lifestyles, what they're all about. This is not, listen to me before you leave here with the wrong, this is not an, a moral lapse in which you were convicted of your sin and you repented of and you walked with some brothers and sisters into sanctification and you're changing. That is the Christian life. That's where we all walk. We all have moral lapses. We all fall. What Paul is pointing to are those who do not repent. Those whose lives are this. And he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. You know, you were born in the south. You were born on the pew of a, a church. That doesn't make you a Christian. That does not make you a Christian. Paul takes this list and he says, the sexually immoral, the fornicator, this is huge. This is just a big blanket term covering all genres. And he basically says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. He does, they're not a believer. They are not a believer. If someone lives in unrepentant sin, a lifestyle of a fornicator, if he's sleeping around all the time, if he's addicted to porn and he will not repent, if he's an adulterer living a secret life with a mistress tucked away somewhere and he won't repent of that, if he's actively engaged in a homosexual relationship, He will not, or she will not, inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. Nor will an idolater, one who worships something other than the one true God as God. I don't care if it's as trivial as shoes. If you worship something as ultimate, that will bring you happiness beyond your ability to imagine. It is your God and you are serving it and you are not living a life in communion with the one true God. And an idolater, whether it be a person, a place, or a thing, other than the one true God, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Thieves, Those who are greedy, those who are swindlers, 
People that are always looking to get ahead, using people for their own gain, making money their God. People who abuse the confidence of others for their own gain. People who would rather take someone to court rather than lose a few dollars. These people are outside the sphere of salvation. Drunkards. One who, ad- who is addicted to intoxicating things. Who lives his life for the buzz, day in and day out. Who has made alcohol and drugs their God, their coping mechanism. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. The revilers, the slanderers. Those who mistreat people with their tongue. Who crush them by their words. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, people who live such lives can claim to be Christians. But Paul says, do not be deceived. There is a coming judgment for such people. If there is no life change, no transformation in their life, then there is no Jesus, no power of the atoning sacrifice for our sins, no power of the resurrection in our lives, no salvation, and you have been deceived. You see, this whole list is just filled with people who worship self. And that puts you in direct odds with the holy God of the universe. But then Paul has this great little saying. This little little short little sentence. And such were some of you. This doesn't mean that some of the Corinthians or those in the room here today were not sinners. It means that this was the righteous judgment on us all. We're all rightly condemned for our sin. We're all in need of a Savior. Some had found fellowship with God. Some had been released. You see, the Corinthian church, just like this church, was filled with ex-fornicators, ex-idolaters, ex-thieves, ex-swindlers, ex-drunkards, and the like. We were all dead in our sin. It was our identity. We were an enemy of God. That's who we were. We were on the outside of the kingdom looking in with no hope to get inside. Nobody to unlock the door. We were locked out. With no hope. Desperately in need of rescue. So what gets you out of the unrighteous column and into the column of the righteous. God does. God does. You see, this is the good news. God sent a rescuer. He sent his one and only son with one single purpose. To glorify his father to save sinners and reconcile them back to the Father. Christ came into the world. He lived a sinless life. 
He was beaten and mocked and spit on and nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he suffered the full holy wrath of God in your stead. He became the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for your sin. And he died. And he was buried. And on the third day, God raised him from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, and giving life to all of those who would simply say yes. Yes. Yes, I believe. I believe, Jesus, that you are my sin bearer, my sin conqueror, my king, my Lord, my Savior, and that there is no salvation outside of you. You see, Jesus' willing submission to the Father's will, his death on the cross on our behalf, His resurrection from the dead has provided for us our washing. You have been cleansed, Paul says. He lifts the mirror up to the church once again. He says, you're living more like this. But look here. Look here. You have been washed. You have been regenerated, made new, made clean. Titus 3, 5 says this, not because of works. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is God's regenerating, recreating work in your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Quit living like the unrighteous and live like the righteous one that you are. Not only... Have you been washed? But his work provides our sanctification. He has made us holy. Remember back in the first chapter, verse 2, when he told the Corinthian church, he started this whole thing with this statement, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, set apart, made holy, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. God has made you holy, and by the power of his Spirit indwelling you, gives you the power to live a righteous life outwardly. And he is our justification. You have been declared righteous 
before God. You have been reconciled into a right relationship with Him only by the work of Christ. Romans 4. But the words it was counted to Him were not written for His sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. God defeated sin, you did not. He's the one who sent his son to die and to be raised again so that you might be in right relationship with him. Paul reminds the Corinthian church of all of this. Because he desperately wants them to see who they are and how they are to live. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot do good things and earn salvation. But God gives you salvation that you might do good things. That you might worship him and glorify him. He has washed you that you might be holy and that you might live in eternity in right relationship with him. So today, as we throw all this together, as we think about what God's word says, what about you? What about your life today? You may not be taking someone in this congregation to court But you may be taking them to the court of public opinion by the way you speak about them and by the way that you treat them. Is that in line with the gospel? Is that in line with who you are as the church? Maybe you look more like the first list, those who would not inherit the kingdom than you do the second. How can that be? Paul would say. That is to your shame. You've been saved out of that world and brought into the family of God, the church. And as such, you are to be holy and you are to live holy. So today, let's seek our hearts Seek the Spirit of God to bring about more sanctification in our hearts. May we be quick repenters and cherish the relationship of God and one another above our rights or even above our freedoms.